Good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. Welcome to December and the Christmas season. And the scripture this morning is from Matthew chapter 14. When Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. When the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The day's now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages to buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Well, we have only five fish here, and two, five loaves here, and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the leaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. They took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for being the one who not only satisfies our needs day to day, but Lord, you hold the keys to eternal life. In you is found real life, real hope, real purpose. Lord, even though the holidays can often be just stressful and we struggle with many things, God, I just thank you that in you we can have hope. We don't have to create it ourselves. We look to you. We remember the story. We remember why you came. It was for us. You had us in mind. You had our name on your heart. And God, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this Christmas season. Thank you for Chris and all of the staff. Thank you for all who are putting so much time in already to get night in Bethlehem costumes and sets and lines and characters and cookies together. Father, we just pray that you would bring hope to many, many in our community. And we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It is night in Bethlehem week. It is exciting time, and we, we're just saying, go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born, and we're going to be doing that this week, and so be praying for us. I hope you guys are involved and get a chance to come together as a church family just to do um, all kinds of interesting and crazy things that are in the midst of church, right? Um, star bits. You didn't realize how important star bits were to the life of a church until you do a night in Bethlehem. And you got to put these sets together. But it's going to be a super exciting time. Um, Eric, thank you so much for reading scripture. You know, the story that Eric read about the feeding of the 5,000 is a story that's, that's in all four of the gospel messages. Very few things are listed in all four of them. In fact, from the triumphal entry on, there's several of them. Um, and besides the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, only the start of his ministry is mentioned in all four gospels. So we have this very, very important story that we're going to be diving into today. But before we do, we need to do a little bit of work to kind of get there, to understand kind of the purpose 
purpose and, and why this story is such a pivotal point in Jesus' ministry. So let's start back at the end of chapter 13. Because as you know, Matthew has been taking us on this journey, and he doesn't always write chronological. He's not like Luke, who is this reporter, and he's just telling you the story as it happens and giving you like equal time with each section of Jesus' life. Matthew is writing with a purpose in order to point out these things about who Jesus is to prove that he is the king. And so we see in verse 53, it says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. So, so this parable section is finished. And now he's going on to this kind of new section with this new theme. And so it started making me think about what are the themes that we've covered so far. So, so I wrote some down. I kind of gave myself a little outline to kind of go over. And we talk about what are the things we've learned about Jesus, the King, the Messiah so far. So we start out in Matthew chapters 1 and 2 with Jesus as being the Emmanuel, God with us, right? This birth story of Jesus' coming in the flesh for all mankind, right? And so we have this, that Jesus came, right? And he makes us think of like verses like Isaiah chapter 9, right? Where it talks about unto us a child is born, right? He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. When we talk about go tell the mountain, that Jesus Christ is born, we're saying, go tell everyone that Emmanuel, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace is here. And that's what we're going to be proclaiming in the night in Bethlehem. And then there's this transition that happens at the end of chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3, uh, where John the Baptist comes on the scene. And you remember, it's another quote out of Isaiah chapter 40 that they use, which is talking about, prepare the way for the Lord. Right, one is coming in the wilderness, so John was coming to prepare the way. So we, we have this little section of kingly preparations that are being made, right, where we have the baptism of Jesus, we have the temptations of Jesus, and, and everything is getting ramped up, ready for Jesus' ministry to begin. And then after that, we see Jesus as a teacher, right? He gives this Sermon on the Mount, which redefines the way that we see the law. It used to be, don't steal not, don't murder. Now it's don't hate, don't lust. All of a sudden, it's not just about what you do, but it's about what you believe. Your faith comes in. And then at the end of that section, we see sort of this um, finishing, transitioning. And look what it says in chapter 7, verse 28. It said, when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So we have this new section where Jesus' authority is going to be shown to everyone. He's going to begin to heal the infirmities of people. He's going to begin to um, calm the sea. You remember these sets of three that were showing up where, where Matthew was saying, Jesus is the Lord over all of creation. He's the Lord over sicknesses and the disease. He's the Lord over even the physical things that have been created Jesus has authority. And then we transition again, because then he starts talking about how the, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray the Lord will send out workers into his harvest. And we have this, this new mission that Jesus begins, and he sends out the 12. You might remember we had this whole sermon on the preparation of them being sent out. So Jesus begins this mission, this, this work to tell them that the kingdom of God is at hand. And then after that, we see what we saw last week. 
And we see these parables begin to, to pop up, and he begins to do these teachings where he's telling a story, he's illustrating a point that is central to how we should be living as well. And here, in that verse we just read, we have this new transition point. We're now transitioning into this, this new idea, right? And this new idea is this, that Jesus, King Jesus, is the prophet. That King Jesus was going to come, and he was going to be the prophet. Now, what do I mean by the prophet, right? We're talking about the prophet as in he was going to be the one that had been promised. Look what happens in this story to Jesus. It says, and when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. So Jesus comes home to the hometown, right? His fame, the things that were known about Jesus were known, right? And he comes and he teaches in their synagogue so that they were astonished. But they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So Jesus said, A prophet is not welcome in his hometown. And he calls himself this prophet. Now, can you imagine this scene? How many of you, if you were to go home and you were to tell them that you were a Christian, some people would be shocked. Some people in your high school, maybe you go home to your like 20th or 30th or maybe 35th high school reunion, right? And you're like, hey, I'm a pastor now. And how would they react to that? Some people would be like, I could see it. You're a pretty nice guy, you know. You, you, you had it together. Other people are like, you? You, the one who used to lie to me about this thing? I mean, you? I remember what you were like. There's no way, right? But imagine even more. I go to my 35th reunion. I'm like, hey, guys, I'm a prophet from God. Listen up, right? And here Jesus is. He's in the hometown. Now, some people might have been like, hey, I remember Luke 2, you were teaching in the synagogue. Your family left you for a day, right? Remember that story? And, and Jesus was amazing the people in Jerusalem, in the synagogue. But here comes Jesus back. And they're like, no, no, you can't be a prophet. You're a, you're a carpenter. You can't be a prophet. Yeah, I know the story of your mom. I know how, yeah, virgin birth, sure, yeah. I know, I remember the story, right? The, the hometown, the rumors flaring. And here comes Jesus back, and they reject him. Here's the prophet, and they say no. So Jesus is starting sort of this idea that he is a prophet. Remember, a prophet is one who speaks from God on God's behalf to mankind. A priest is someone who speaks to God on behalf of men. And so we have now Jesus fulfilling this prophet role that we're going to see here today. He's also the priest. Remember in Hebrews, he's the great high priest, and he's also the king. So he's prophet, priest, and king. This is Jesus, the baby that we celebrate at Christmas. And so we're going to see through this theme, this idea of this prophet is to come. That, now that idea first began back in Deuteronomy. Do you remember last week where we finished off saying, we've got to be able to bring out the treasures of the old and the new? Or let's bring out some of the old treasure. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. 
And let's look at this story. This is Moses talking to the people. And he's going to tell them this story. All right, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So Moses is going to tell them, there is going to be one that comes back who's a prophet like me. Okay, remember that term, like me, right? Then he says, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. Do you remember that story at Mount Sinai where, where the fire of God had come down on the mountain and it began to tremble and the people were afraid and they're like, no, no, we don't want to hear God speak. We want you, Moses, and can you cover your face? And, and we want you to be the one that speaks to us. And so Moses is saying, yes, another is going to come like me who is a prophet like me. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words into his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of, another, of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Whoo! Being a prophet was a tough job. You had to be sure that it was God speaking to you that you told the people. Because if not, if you were presumptuous in the way that you spoke or, or you spoke on behalf of other gods, the sentence was death. You had to be 100 on all your prophecies. Look what it says next. It says, and when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the prophet that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, and you need not be afraid of him. So he's saying, when that, this prophet speaks, it has to come true. So there's even today people that would call themselves modern-day prophets. They would be able to say that God has said this over you and be able to speak over you in those things. If they don't speak 100% true, they're not speaking on behalf of God. So be careful when you hear people saying things and, and trying to proclaim things, saying, God told me to tell you what you're saying is, I am acting as a prophet. So we have to be careful. We have to be careful that we're not trying to put more authority behind our own words if we haven't heard that from God. So this, this idea of this prophet that was to come was something that the Jewish people would have been looking for. And they were supposed to, this prophet was supposed to be like Moses. Now, when you think about Moses, what kind of stories come to mind? You think about stuff like his birth, right? This, 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 him being stuck in the basket in the Nile because this crazy pharaoh was scared of the people and was, was killing babies. Remember, they were killing the, the boys that were born, and, and the midwives didn't do that, but then they just started throwing kids in the Nile, right? And so this prophet to come was going to be like Moses, just as Moses was born under this tyrant that wanted to kill children. So this prophet would be, was that true about Jesus? When you read the Christmas story, this thing, what happens with Herod? He tries to kill all the children two years old and under. 
right? And, and he came out of Egypt, and here comes Jesus coming out of Egypt. Think of other stories, like, like the burning bush story, right? You have, let my people go, right? You have manna and, and like, um, the water coming out of the rock. You have the Red Sea passing through it. You have the Ten Commandments. You have all these things that, that make you think of, of Moses now are those things that Jesus fulfilled in his coming. And we're going to see today some of those very things be fulfilled in him coming. In fact, we're going to see this idea of the manna and this idea of him taking people through the sea, both of those things taking place. But before we get there, we're going to see what happens to those that are prophets. Because in order to be a prophet, there's a certain degree of uh, bravery that you got to have. Right, because look what happens next in Matthew chapter 14. Okay? It says this. At the time of Herod, the Tetrarch, or at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, right? So Jesus is, what he is doing is becoming known all around the world. And so Herod is taking notice. Now, before we go too far, I need you to realize this is not the same Herod that was there at the beginning of the story, right? Herod the Great, the one that had asked for the children to be killed two years and under, he's already died. Right? And his sons have been put in control over different regions of the kingdom. When we say Herod, when it's surrounding Jerusalem and, and different things like with the trial of Jesus and so on, right? that would have been Herod Archelaus. Right? That would be the Herod that's over kind of that area, Jerusalem and, and most of the area. Right? You can kind of see this map. But then there's this Herod and Antipas, who's the Herod that we're talking about in our story today. And he was over Galilee and some of this area across the Jordan. Jordan, right? But then there was another, the, the youngest brother, Herod Philip, that was in Caesarea Philippi in this area up in kind of the northeast as you begin to look at that map, right? And so there's these three brothers that are now kind of ruling over the kingdom. If you remember Herod, he was vicious, and his sons were vicious, and not only vicious to other people, but against each other. And there's this last name on this list, Herodias, who is this wife of Herod Philip, the one who's over Caesarea Philippi. But in this story, she ends up divorcing that Herod, and Herod Antipas divorces his wife, almost causing a civil war. And they, it's like a soap opera of King Herod, right? A day in a life of King Herod, right? So this is the soap opera of marriage, divorce, cheating on one another, all this stuff is happening. And John the Baptist, being a prophet begins to call it out. And that's where we kind of pick up this story. So at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So he, Herod begins to freak out because of what we're talking about next. We're going to flash back to the story. And he thinks that Jesus is actually John the Baptist resurrected. Because all the people believe that John was a prophet. So look, we'll pick it up and we see this kind of flashback. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. And actually in Mark 6, Herod was kind of curious 
about John. He saw John as this, this perplexing, interesting guy that would tell him things, and, and he was kind of interested, but then he wasn't interested because he was condemning him, and, and Herodias was holding a grudge against John, and so we just see this sort of mess that's going on there. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. So here comes Herodias sending her daughter into the party to dance for Herod. This, this girl, her name is Salome. We hear, learn that from Josephus, one of the early um, writers of antiquity and history, um, that she goes in and dances. Now, most people think that this dance was a seductive sort of dance. We don't know that from the text. We just know that whatever dance she did, it pleased Herod to make this foolish oath and foolish promise to her. And so he makes this promise. He said that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. He said, up to half my kingdom, it says in Mark. And prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. Now, if I gave you a, an idea for a wish, hey, I'll give you everything I have, up to half of all that I have, would you ask for someone's head on a platter? That tells you how deep the hatred that Herodias has and how she's, not, she's willing to use her daughter to get revenge in this case. It tells you this is not a pleasant household. This is not a place that's honoring the Lord. And so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. She asked for the head of John the Baptist. And when she asked, the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guest, he commanded it to be given. See, who he projected himself to be, this powerful king, this king that everybody should fear, the reality is he was scared. He was scared that people would see that his projected image did not match the reality. And so he gives in. And he was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. And he sent and he had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and they told Jesus. Whew, it is dangerous to be a prophet. You see, when you begin to speak to people the words of God, sometimes people are going to reject you. Sometimes trials are going to come into your life. We see this with Jesus. He comes to his hometown, rejection. We see John speaking truth, right, this forerunner and death because of the anger of those around him. That when you follow God, sometimes there's going to be trials that come into our life. How are we going to handle, how are we going to walk in those different trials? Being a prophet was a dangerous job. Right? When you look back on the prophets in the Old Testament, right, you see some of them, like Jeremiah, gets thrown into a pit and left there. You see Isaiah, right? We've already quoted Isaiah several different times. He gets sawn in half by Manasseh. All right, we see Zechariah, even Stephen, this kind of modern-day person, getting stoned to death because they're speaking the truth of God. So when trials come into our life, we shouldn't be surprised. If we're on God's team or speaking on his behalf, you're going to have trials in your life. And so Jesus is trying to get them sort of ready for these trials. Let's keep going. Look what he says next in this Feeding the 5,000 story. Now, when Jesus heard this, when he heard about John the Baptist's death, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place 
by himself. Jesus had a tendency to, to want to be with his father, to, right, to, to go away to desolate places in order to spend time with God. Because anywhere that he walked, people, that he was a rock star. They were bringing the sick to him. They were bringing the leprous to him. Everybody wanted a piece of Jesus. So here he goes, wanting to get away to mourn the death of John the Baptist. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. That even Jesus, in this time of wanting to get away, he, had, he looked at the people, and he had compassion. He, he loved them. I mean, can you picture the story? He's in a boat going around the Sea of Galilee, and the people are running on the shore trying to follow the boat Right? They're, they're looking to get to the place that Jesus was going to go with the hope of his healing, with hope of his wisdom, wanting to be near Jesus. And when he saw them, he had compassion on them. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So this is a very pragmatic idea, isn't it? They're looking around. There's all of these people here, and he's saying, hey, we're in a desolate place. There's no food out here in this wilderness, desert-type place. Jesus, you need to send them away so they can go get food. Sounds sound sensible, but Jesus is going to challenge them. In fact, in John 6, we see that Jesus knew what he was going to do, but he still tested them. Right, it says he literally tested them. He, he put them into sort of a, a little mini trial to see were they going to trust in God, were they going to put their trust in him, or were they going to reject the people. See, when he wanted to get away, he had compassion. He pressed in. And here there's this trial. They're wanting to push away. But Jesus said to them, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they're, they're looking around. Right? We know in this story... What Eric read, there's 5,000 men, with, along with women and children. There's probably, most scholars say, 15 to 20,000 people there. Now, listen, we do a banquet, and it's hard to get through the food line at a banquet, right? But they're looking around going, there are 15, the, all of Bob Shelton Stadium is completely full, every seat filled, and we have to bring them nachos. How, how are we going to do this? Right, and they're the logistic. In fact, when you look at John, they're like, it, we, it would cost 200 denarii even to give every person a bite. That, what he's saying is that denarii was a, a day's wage. It's like it would take seven months of pay just to give each person a bite, let alone to provide a meal for all of them. And so the disciples, and for some reason, like all we have is five loaves, and if it, all we have is this little boy's lunch. What, what can we do with that? What, what can we do? What are the possibilities? You see, so often when we're in the middle of a trial, we look around at our circumstances and it feels hopeless, doesn't it? You get that diagnosis, it feels hopeless. You look at that bill and you're like, look, bank account, bill, bank account, bill. The numbers still don't change, but you keep looking. Like, that, that, that ain't going to work. And we look at it in our, our own eyes and our own strength and that, the math doesn't add up. But he's saying, hey, look it through my eyes. Hey, we have something here. And Jesus said to them, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down 
on the grass. So he asked them to sit down in groups of 50 and 100. Now, it's interesting. Sitting down on the grass would have given you a time stamp for when this took place. This would have been in the spring. And when you look at the other Gospels, you find out that this is right near Passover. Right, so all these people are traveling, getting ready to go to Passover. They see Jesus. They're there with him. And now he's going to give them this incredible sign to show them his strength and his power and that he is truly this prophet. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowd. So do you have this picture? In a desolate place, kind of out in the wilderness area, Jesus sitting up on the hill, breaking bread. Here's disciples going off to this group, going off to this group. And here they are, those 12 guys, they're going out. They're taking it everywhere, right, and feeding the people. It says, and they all ate and were satisfied. They didn't all just get a little crumb. They ate and were satisfied. Jesus isn't just a provider but he's a good provider. He provides enough for us. He is that provider for us. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And each gospel writer points out that, that when they, they took back the resources, when people were done and they gathered all the leftovers, there were 12 baskets full of leftovers. What do those baskets represent? They're going to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, right? They're representing that this group of people, that this bread was provided for them. Does that echo in the back of your mind anywhere? Do you remember another time that God provided bread for the 12 tribes? Ooh, kind of echoes back to Moses, doesn't it? And the manna that's in the wilderness. In fact, if you go to John uh, chapter 6, and when John begins to tell this story, he gives a story, and then this thing happens in, in verse 14. Right? Look what it says in verse 14 and see how it ties it together. And this is John 6. When the people saw the sign that he had done, right, this feeding the 5,000, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. That the people made a connection. Because look at all the things that Moses did. One like Moses was going to come who provided the manna, the bread from heaven. And then verse 15 says, perceiving, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force, to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. That the people, when they saw this feeding of the 5,000, they were so sure that Jesus was the prophet, they were going to go to war against Rome. That's how confident they were. Why? Because he broke five loaves and two fish and provided for them. They saw in him this idea, the prophet. And then as you, you continue this story, Jesus tells them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And then he tells them, the bread you're going to eat is my flesh. And they begin to, oh, what, what, what cannibalism, right? And they begin to kind of freak out on all these things, right? And almost everybody leaves him. He goes from almost being taken by force to be made king to by the end of his next sermon, everybody has deserted him except the disciples. And what do they say? Where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. So this story is not just about bread, not just about God being our provider. It's not just about how whatever you have, even your lunch, can be used for the Lord. It's about the fact that Jesus Christ is the prophet, the one that was to come and set the people free to speak on behalf of God. And then he shows them in a new way and in a different way. Look what happens next. Verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat 
and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. So Jesus is sending them away in the boat so that he can now dismiss the crowds and he's going to meet them later, right? Now listen, what's interesting about the story is he sends them out on the boat on the sea at night with a headwind that was going to be hard going. It's like Jesus is testing them. He's putting them in the midst of trials to test them. Now listen, does God give us trials? Now listen, there's a difference between trials and temptations, aren't there? You see, when you talk about trials, right, when you see that biblically, you see this idea of these trials are a test, right? It's a test that God gives us in order to help us learn something about Jesus. So trials is like the human parable. Parables taught us something about Jesus that we need to adjust our life to. Trials teach us something about Jesus that make us more like him. Where temptations, this is like when desires take hold of us. It's more like a knife. that It can shape us, but it also makes us bleed. And temptations are when our own desires lead us away, where we learn more about ourselves, where trials teach us more about who God is and how we need to conform to the likeness of his son. In fact, the best author at describing these things to us is, is James, right? Go to James chapter 1, right? And we'll see how James describes these things, okay? Here's what he says in James chapter 1, verse 2. You've heard me say this one before. A lot of times. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So a trial is meant to test our faith. It's to test us, to prove us to be genuine. Right? Look at, look, go down a little bit further. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life to which God has promised to those who love him. That a trial is meant to be a test. And what, what does a test do? It tests how much you know. How much do you know and trust Jesus? It helps develop our faith in there. But what is a temptation? Look what he says in the next verse. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, when we give in to our desires, what's produced? Death. Sin and death. When we endure a trial, what's produced in us? Genuine faith. So when you're going through that trial... That hard thing, that thing that you feel like, man, I don't know if I can make it through it. The endurance that you live with, the perseverance helps you become mature to be able to trust God more and more as you do it. Right? Look, look back. Let's look at this trial. How does Jesus resolve this trial that they're being sent out to in this boat? Verse 23, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came... He was there alone. So Jesus finally got away to have this time with his father. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, that's 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., so they've been rowing for a while. 
Jesus has spent some time with the Father. He came to them walking on the sea. Isn't this amazing? Now, let's be honest. How many of you out there have tried to walk on water? Anybody with me? Come on. I'm the, a couple of us, like, you're like, okay, you're at the pool. You're like, Lord Jesus, right? Help me. And you like run. And you try to just, it never works, right? You always just kaplunk in there, right? But here Jesus is. He's going to walk on. What does that look like to you? When Jesus walks out there, does he look unsteady? Is he like hurtling the waves? Like how are you picturing it? Like is he like knee deep? Is he like just on top of the surface? Is the water full of joy to be able to hold up the king? Like these hydrogen and oxygen that are there that make up the water, are they like, Jesus? And they're just like, they're excited to be able to hold the king of kings. See, in Jewish thinking, this water was chaos. It was the entryway to the abyss. It was just this thing that could not be controlled. Water was scary. It brought fear in the mind of the Jewish people. But here Jesus is walking over the chaos, walking over the grave, walking over the abyss. He's walking in confidence, and every H2O molecule is like glad to hold him up as he walks through. I, in my imagination, this is purely Chris Smith imagination, right? This is not in the Bible. I imagine the waves avoiding him, him not avoiding the waves. Now, when the king of kings walks out, the creator is like, hey, I'm going this way, right? Get out of my way. And he walks out to them in the middle of the night. What would, how would you react? Imagine yourself in this scenario. You're on the boat. You're tired. You've been rowing for a while. And all of a sudden you look over and Jesus is walking on the water. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. I think I'd be in that boat. Anybody? Literally, not figuratively. Anyway, uh, I think I would be there like, what? This is not natural. This is not normal. They are thinking, here comes a disembodied soul to take me to the abyss. This is what they're picturing in their Jewish mindset is that, oh, no, it's done. Uh, We're done. And they cry out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. So here is the quote-unquote ghost proclaiming, take heart, be brave, it is I. But but in English language, I think we miss it a little bit. Because this term, it is I, it's this this Greek phrase, which is egomi, let me say it again, egoimi, egoimi, right? It's this idea that we've seen this before. In fact, we quoted it earlier when he said, I am the bread of life. This ego, I, me, this, this, this term means I am. In fact, you see it in the book of John, chapter 8. Do you remember this story where Jesus is having a spicy conversation with the Pharisees? And he's like, Abraham, look forward to this day. And they laugh at him. They're like, how could you know Abraham? You're not even 50 years old. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. And they were like, blasphemy. They took rocks to try to kill him. That when, when Jesus is invoking, he said, take heart, I am. Take heart, God is here. The creator, the one and only, I'm here. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him. Don't you just love Peter? Is anybody out there a Peter? Like, you just, like, say it before you even think about the implications. You're just like, I'm going for it, right? Um, so it says, Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you... 
command me to come out to you on the water. I don't know what it was like. Peter's like, if it's you, let me come out there. What was Peter thinking? Am Jesus doing it? I mean, let's go, right? Show, show me, right? And he, got, and he said, come. I, what was Jesus' face like here? Right? He's on, he's, he's on the water. Peter's like, I want to go out there. He's like, huh, all right, come on. Let's do it. Let's see what you got, right? And he says, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Woo, what would that have been like? What would it have been like for Peter to get out there? But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And, began to, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Peter is walking on the water. What causes him to stop? He takes his eyes off of Jesus. He looks away. And, and that's just something encouraging to us. Like when we keep our eyes on Jesus, all things are possible through God. When we take our eyes and we begin to put them on the trials that are around us, the troubles, the wind, the waves, all of a sudden we begin to sink into depression, anxiety, stress. We begin to sink into those things instead of turn your eyes upon Jesus. Keep our eyes focused upon him. And Jesus immediately, I love this, he didn't just like, oh, Peter, let him get under the water for a while. Be like, I'll get him in a second. He needs to learn his lesson. No, no, he immediately, Jesus rescues him. Immediately, he reached out his hand and he took hold of him saying, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Oh, Peter, you were doing it. You're walking. You're walking in the strength and the power of God. You're overcoming this impossible situation. Oh, why did you doubt? And it makes me think, like, what did Peter learn? Like, if, if this trial is meant to teach us about things, what did Peter learn? Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, right? This is Peter writing um, in this story, writing his own words. Look, look, these are Peter's own words, and he begins to bring up this, this trial. He's just introduced himself. He's just praised God, blessed be the God of our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, he says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary... You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. That our trials, the walking through these trials, that they create a genuineness of faith that result in praise. So if you're in the midst of a trial, you're in the midst of a hard time, as you trust God and walk with endurance, he's going to show his faithfulness to you. And he's going to make your faith genuine. Do you think Peter was different after this interaction? Do you think Peter was different because of walking on the water and seeing these things? And it results in praise. And that's how this story finishes. Look at the end of this story. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. That even though they had walked through this trial, rowing all night against the wind, when Jesus showed up and showed his power, there was praise. So I want to encourage you, if you're in the middle of the trial, in the midst of it, at the end of this trial, of after the endurance, is praise. That you will know God in a deeper way because of what you're having to walk through with him. All right, let's pray.
Lord, I thank you even for the trials that we have in our life. Because those trials help us to learn more about you. And so Lord, I pray for us that you will help us with, to walk with endurance and persever perseverance through even the darkest of trials. Lord, that through that there will be a, a genuineness of our faith that is full of you. So Lord, help us to keep our eyes upon you. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. Hello, church. Uh, thank you. <laughs> Hello. Um, so today is a very nice day outside. It's like perfect weather to be building sets. I don't know about, what do you think? <laughs> so, we, of course, y'all know Night in Bethlehem is taking place this uh, upcoming weekend, and today is our construction day. So I just want to invite you to come on out after third service, immediately following. We'll meet in here uh, just for a little a briefing of what we're going to be doing outside. We'll also have some pizza for those that are going to be serving, so you can, you can even wait for lunch and have it here. But we'll um, work uh, through the afternoon putting sets together, so we'd love for you to uh, join us. It'll be right after third service. Also, just to let you know, um, if you come to help, please park along Grace Street or at Stepping Stone or around Kirby because Harold Funeral Home has um, a memorial service uh, for people who have they've lost loved ones, and they're going to be doing that throughout the afternoon, and there's another one in the evening. So we're going to try to keep that area free for them. If you are an actor, you're going to meet today at 5 o'clock, and you'll uh, do a, a run-through. Uh, and then again, Wednesday will be the full dress rehearsal. So today, you don't have to get all dressed up, but you're going to be going through your lines. And so meet with Sandra at 5 o'clock. If you do not have your costume, please pick your costume up. They're available as soon as you walk out these doors to the left in the children's common area. And then we have our Honduras mission trip that's coming up in spring break. We mentioned it last week. And if you are interested in going, please uh, come see myself. And we have some more information out on the table. We need to go ahead and get deposits in so we can uh, make those reservations. And speaking of missions, I am excited to invite my brother Eric Ream up and to introduce to you, church, our new missions pastor, Eric Ream. Uh, if you've not had a chance to visit with Eric, I want to encourage you to do so. He has such a heart for missions. He's been involved in missions for many years, has lived in Haiti doing missions. He serves as an elder here at Fellowship Church, and we're just excited to have him serve uh, with us. So, Eric, you want to say something? Sure. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, church. And uh, appreciate the elders as well. And uh, their uh, their trust and prayer through this process. Um, I would just appreciate your prayers uh, for me that I would uh, serve the Lord well and serve you well so that each of us can serve the world and serve the peoples of this world well um, and help them to know the truth of what uh, Jesus says in our closing verse in John 16, uh, 33, chapter 16, verse 33. He says, I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Isn't that great news? You guys are dismissed. I hope to see you at the Honduras table.